0: Happy Fourth of July. Um, Oh, flip that around. (laughs) This morning we will be continuing uh, our study in the absence of Dr. Campbell through the book of 2 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, please open up them to 2 Peter chapter 2. In particular, verse 9 will serve both as the thesis of our text as well as the main point of the sermon this morning. 2 Peter 2 verse 9 says this. It says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord rescues the righteous and he judges the wicked. He is both a deliverer and a punisher. And before we move on to the rest of the passage, we we must dig in and understand what does God mean when he uses words like this. So first of all, what does it mean that God is our rescuer? What does it mean that the Lord is our Savior? From what does he save us? So our salvation, um, our saving by God, is twofold. It's an already and a not yet. First of all, God rescues us from the wickedness of our soul through the atonement of Christ, which condemns all people. Our sin condemns all people. And this comes through faith alone in the promises of God, which Peter touches on in the beginning of this epistle. In chapter 1, verse 4, he said this, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, including precious and very great promises. This, this is our forgiveness. This is our justification. This is our right standing before the Lord. And this salvation and this presence of the Spirit gives us power to be faithful to God in every circumstance, everything that life can throw at us. Which is why Peter in the first chapter also reminds us to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and love, you will never fail. You'll never fall away from the Lord. So that's the the first sense in the fact that we're rescued by God. But in the second sense, and this is a key point to the whole book, the godly will be rescued in a full and final way when the Lord returns. At the end of all time, when, the God, when God rescues his church from the wickedness of this world through the resurrection of the dead. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, talk about this point. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, the last day, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and But in another sense, our rescue is not yet. Christ has not returned yet. And, And when we misunderstand what God means when he says that he rescues us, we run the risk of wrongly accusing him of unfaithfulness when our circumstances are tough and when the world is evil. And there's one more question we've got to deal with before we get to the text. Sorry, this is a long introduction. What does it mean when God says that he judges the wicked? What should we think about when the Lord says this? The judgment of the wicked, like our salvation, is twofold. It's an already and not yet. First of all, the Lord is even now punishing the wicked in this world. And that that doesn't mean that they cease to do evil things. Romans 1 teaches us that God's wrath is revealed in this world by the fact that he is handing the wicked over to their sin. He blinds them from the truth as punishment. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So in in a sense, God's judgment is on the world right now for the wicked. It's as Peter said at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. So in a sense, God is already judging the wicked. But in another sense, their final judgment has not yet come. It's already, but not yet. Because God will punish all wickedness ultimately only on the last day. And and we can't mix these two up because when we do we ask this question in unbelief. We ask, Lord, are you at work? Do you not see the evil in the world when we forget that God has already promised us that he is judging the wicked now and yet waiting for the last day? And this is what we will see over and over and over in our passage this morning. That God knows how to rescue the righteous and to keep the wicked under punishment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, your your word is beautiful. It is immovable. It is unchanging. We trust that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel that is preached to us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to understand this often difficult word from 2 Peter this morning. I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. So, once again, our passage this morning is 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And I'm going to read this passage in its entirety before we section it off verse by verse. Hear now the word of God. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of a gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. And here in this passage this morning, we will see four things. We will see Peter pointing to past examples, Giving us a portrait of a righteous man, showing the protection of the Lord, and giving us a portrait of the wicked man. We'll start with this first past example in verse 4, where he talks about, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. This is the beginning of his looking back at examples. And just to let you know, this whole passage is one sentence in the original language. It's literally one continuous thought. As I was studying it, I was reminded of um, me and a couple other men of the church are going through the city of Augustine's city of God, this summer. And there have been a couple times, Addison knows this, where you start reading, and you keep reading, you're like, wait, this sentence has been going on for like a whole page. And sometimes it's crazy, but it's like that. And that's exactly what Peter is doing right here. It's one continuous thought, one big if-then clause. Because we see the word if repeated over and over in our English Bibles But in the Greek, it only appears once, and is implied for the rest of the passage. But but there's a ton of wisdom in the fact that Peter points us to the Old Testament, to Genesis, when he's trying to ground these principles. Because all three of these examples are from the first half of Genesis, uh, in the very beginning. And I think he does this to show us that the believers then were in many ways the same as believers now. It's always been the same church of God. Which means that the wisdom from the past ages of the church applies to the current age of the church as well. So if you're like me when you first read this passage, uh, this first verse, you thought to yourself, What is the sin of the angels? What is Peter talking about? So let's dig into the question of first of all, like who is he talking about? Who are these angels? So so we know that angels exist. And the the author of Hebrews tells us that they are ministering spirits who attend to the people of God. And just as we know that angels exist, we must also know that demons exist, evil spirits, servants of Satan. These were once pure angels, servants of God, but they fell from that status, presumably along with Satan. Hence why this passage calls them angels. And here's the point. The scriptures do not tell us plainly, how this happened, how the angels fell from their original standing. And we don't need to know. I think it's a healthy thing as a Christian to realize where the scripture speaks, there we should speak. And where the scriptures are silent, there we should be silent. But This is what we do know. We know that Satan fell like lightning from heaven, and Jesus witnessed that. We know that the great dragon swept a third of the stars from heaven. Revelation 12, and I think it's reasonable to think that these are angels. We also know that Satan has lied from the beginning, and all of his entourage follows him in those lies. So all demons were once angels, beings that are greater than humans, who fell away from their station as God's servants and are being punished for it. Jude verse 6 says something very similar says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, following the Lord. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The judgment of demons is sure, and God has condemned them to hell from the moment of their fall. Now, we might be tempted to look around at the world and see all the evil that's going on and think to ourselves, are are the demons really in chains? Are they really condemned? But they are entirely bound to the Lord's purpose. They're on a leash, a tight leash from God, if you will. Remember when when Jesus, during the Gospels, encountered the two demon-possessed men on the other side of the lake. When Jesus came to them, they looked at him and cried out and said, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew. They knew that judgment was coming upon them. They know the day is coming. So here is the force of this first example, of Peter. If God judged the angels who are greater than humans, he will surely judge the lesser, which are false teachers and us. And friends, it's passages like this, which shows that doctrine is no joke. I know, like... Going to, I went to a Baptist college, Anderson, and it was so often where I'd get nitpicked. Like, you Presby- Presbyterians just make too much of everything. You're nitpickers and just everything's a big issue. And, yeah, that's true. And there's passages like this that drive us to be like that. Because we're only staunch because I believe the Lord demands us to be so when it comes to doctrine and truth. Because if the angels were punished for their sin, how much more will we be punished if we misrepresent the truth of God. God knows how to rescue the righteous and keep the wicked under punishment. The second example with which Peter points us is in verse 5. He says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he moves from the angels to a few chapters later in Genesis, to the flood as another example of God's judgment and deliverance. We read about this in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, which says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. Why did Noah find favor in the Lord? Because he was righteous. And as we know, the Lord brought this terrible judgment of the flood upon the world because of its wickedness. He looked down and it said that every intention of humanity's heart was wickedness always. But also in his great mercy, he provided a way for Noah and his family to survive the flood. It's also important, notice here, he calls Noah a, a, a herald of righteousness. This word could also mean preacher or proclaimer. He he was preaching God's truth in his life. You might think to yourself, I don't remember reading in Genesis of Noah being a preacher. I think it's implied. This man spent over a hundred years building a boat miles from water, right? And you don't think that he was asked some questions by his neighbors? Like, what are you doing? Why are you building this boat? The river's right over there. It would make no sense to many people. And yet, I'm sure Noah was saying, the water's coming. Salvation is in here and nowhere else. Please come on. And no one listened. He was a preacher. One commentator says this In many ways, Noah is one of the greatest martyrs of all time. Not that he died for the faith, but because he lived among the wicked and their growing evil for 500 years and no one listened. That'd be tough. And then the flood did come just as the Lord promised. And and this word for flood is where we get our modern word, cataclysm, like a catastrophic event. Literally the most cataclysmic event that this world has ever seen and ever will see until the last day when God judges this world, not with water, but with a cleansing fire. But here is Peter's point, just like the last one. If God judged the ancient world for their sin, he has shown himself to be faithful to the judge, the sins of this world as well. But also, if God preserved Noah, he has shown himself faithful to preserve his church. Our God knows how to rescue the righteous and keep the wicked under punishment. Which moves to Peter's last of the three past examples. In verse 6, where he says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So notice the progression. Talks about the angels, talks about the flood, and now he's at Sodom and Gomorrah, about 10 chapters further in Genesis. And these two cities are infamous. They're remembered all through the Bible as the prime example of what not to do, prime example of wickedness. And this is this is where the term sodomy comes from, referring to homosexuality. For that, among other things, was the chief sin sin for which the Lord punished Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember into Genesis, in Genesis 18, right after the Lord appears to Abraham and Sarah, tells them, you will bear a child in in your old age. Right after that happens, the Lord makes known to Abraham what he is planning to do. He says, I am going to overthrow these cities. And Abraham remembering that his relative Lot lives in those cities, pleads with the Lord. He debated with God. He said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such things. It's Pretty bold saying that to the Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, do what is right? And after debating with the Lord, God promised that for the sake of only ten righteous people, he would save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ten people in a whole city of probably thousands. And yet here's the tough truth. No one was righteous in that town except for Lot and possibly some of his family. Not even ten. And here is Peter's point in this illustration. Sodom Gomorrah is an example to us. Genesis 19 verses 27 through 28 says this, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, probably thinking to himself, did the Lord spare them? Was there ten righteous people? And it says, And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Thankfully, the Lord does not punish every wicked city like this. But in a way, this this singular act of judgment by God is a mercy to the world for the rest of time because it shows us that the Lord's words and promises are true. God knows how to rescue the righteous and keep the wicked under punishment. So we've seen three past examples and now Peter gives us a portrait of a righteous man in the person of Lot. He says, And if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And these two verses raises an, raise an important question for us, which is, how was Lot righteous before God? What does, what does that mean? What does it mean to be righteous before the Lord? So let's start with what it's not. Being righteous before the Lord does not mean that you're perfect. It does not mean that Lot was sinless. If you recall, when Lot and Abraham were deciding between which lands to go to, Lot was somewhat selfish. He saw the best of the lands and the best of everything and chose it immediately for himself. But even worse, when Lot was seeking to protect the angels from the men of the town, remember that awful moment when he says, here are my virgin daughters, have them seeking to satisfy the sexual perversion of the men. Trust me, Lot was no perfect guy. But being righteous before God has never meant that you're perfect, never meant that you're without sin. There, there is an inward and an outward component to righteousness. And the inward always leads to the outward. Because Lot, being a righteous person, means that the Lord has, by his good pleasure, chosen him. And drawn him to himself. And made him righteous through the death and atonement of Jesus. That's what that word means. Romans 1.17 says that the true righteousness of God, his holy standard, is revealed in one thing, and that is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. For a human to be righteous means that you are clothed in the perfection of another, because you could never attain that by what you do. But you might be thinking to yourself, Lot lived like thousands of years before Jesus. How could Lot be saved by believing in Christ? Friends, there have never been Two ways of salvation, ever. Salvation has always been in the faith of the promise of Jesus, from the beginning of time until now. Now, in the Old Testament, this was a a forward-looking trust and promise that the Lord will provide someday. And, And this promise was fostered through types and pictures of the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremony but it was always looking forward. It was never salvation in and of itself. And we now in the time after Christ, we look back to him as a fulfilled reality. That Christ has come. Our sin is paid for by the cross. This is what inward righteousness means. And it applies to Lot because the Lord says that he is righteous, despite the wicked things that he has done. And this inward light righteousness leads to an outward expression. Faith, and in Lot's case, we, we see that on the one hand, he welcomed the angels into town. He was the only one there who welcomed the ministers of the Lord. But more explicitly, this verse shows that Lot hated sin. It says that it tormented his soul. Out of curiosity, have you ever been brought to tears from the sin that you see in this world? Sometimes that happens. I read the news. I I talk to people about their childhood or things that have happened to them, and it can just bring me to tears hearing about the wickedness in this world. And often that doesn't happen until you've come to the point where you, you're, you're brought to tears by your own wickedness. But this is a sign of an outward sign of being a righteous Christian before God. Being broken and tormented by the fact that there is no fear of God in this world. So, in a way, I say that as a comfort to you. Being tormented by the sin in the world that you see is a sign of being saved, a sign of being God's child. One one commentator says this, I loved it. He says, Lot is an Old Testament illustration of justification by faith. And that's beautiful. And now we move on to, to Peter's thesis statement of this whole passage. The protection of the Lord. Because in verse 9 it says, Then the Lord knows, if all these things are true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This is the core of the passage. And oh, how often we all doubt this in our hearts. This is just beautiful. God is our rescuer, rescuer, our savior, our deliverer. We see this language all through the Bible from Exodus until now. That the world is filled with sin. And there are false teachers everywhere. And on top of that, even we who claim to have Jesus sin every day. And we so often forget that Christ is our rescuer from both our sin and this world. This is why we read Romans 7 as our assurance of pardon this morning. Because it is one thing to look at the world and say... God, save me from this wickedness. And it's another thing entirely to look at yourself and say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God, who through Jesus has made a way. Man, this this, this truth gets at my soul. Because so often we, we come to church, we hear the word, we sing songs, we say things, we talk to people, we read our Bible, and we never truly comprehend in your hearts that God is the only rescuer of your soul. The only way the truth and the life. Should you lose everything in this world, your family, your life, your wealth, your possessions, you are no poorer because you have Christ. You are still the richest of all people because of the treasure that is found in Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when he calls to rescue us, It is like the angel who spoke to Lot, who says, come with me now, or you will not make it out alive. Christ is our rescuer. So no no matter what trial you are going through right now, no matter what sin you are personally dealing with, that makes you cry out, oh wretched man that I am, no matter how weak your faith is in Jesus, No matter what false teaching has troubled your heart, look to the promise of God and let this phrase ring in your soul. God knows how to rescue the righteous and keep the wicked under punishment. He knows, not me. So often I think to myself, Lord, why don't you do this or that or that or that or that to change my circumstance? And I forget to humbly say in faith, God knows how to rescue the righteous, not me. God knows how to bring justice, not me. And I I think this church would look differently if we truly believed that in our hearts. I think on the one hand we would be more thankful. More thankful for the salvation that we have. Christ says the one that has been forgiven much loves much. And I hope that would be true with our church as well. I, I, I think believing this truth would make us more evangelistic also. Because here's the thing. We're in a town, in a state, in a country, in a world that doesn't know that there's a rescuer. They don't even know that they need to be rescued. And I think if we really believed this, we would tell people. We would get over the little fears that plague our mind and ask people, do you realize that there is an answer to the problems of your soul? And that is Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful truth. And just as Peter showed us a portrait of the wicked of the righteous man, he closes out this passage, comes down the mountain, if you will, and shows us a portrait of the wicked man in verse 10, in the first part. He says, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. What what does it mean to be wicked before the Lord? We talked about what it means to be righteous. What does it mean to be wicked? First of all, let's start with what it's not. Being wicked does not mean that outwardly you are everyone's Adolf Hitler. That's not what it means. Common grace gives humanity much that benefits society. Knowledge, outward acts of mercy, kindness. But eternally, it it means nothing apart from faith. But what does wickedness look like outwardly? It looks like that there is no fight against sin. There is an indulgence in it. There is a scoffing at what the Lord deems to be holy, and there is no fear of God in the eyes of the wicked man. There is not a hatred of sin, but there is a love for it, a coddling of it, a protection of it. And lastly, Peter says there is a despising of authority, which I take as ultimately a despising of the authority of God's word. The world, the wicked world does not want to hear the truth of God's word, but that doesn't make it any less true. But here's what I want to close with. Here, let us never forget that these wicked people in the world are the ones who need rescuing, just like you and me. Think of of Paul. Before he was converted, he was probably the greatest false teacher on every single Christian's mind. And many of the words in this book would have described him until the Lord, through the gospel, changed his heart. I think my mind goes to members of my extended family who I know who don't believe. Or friends whom I, grew with, whom I grew up with who don't know Christ. And I think of how often I've said in my soul, eh, I don't, I don't think they're going to change. And I believe we need to come to that with more faith. The Lord can change the heart of a wicked man. And the question is this have they heard of the rescuer? Have they heard of their Savior? Because God knows how to rescue the righteous and keep the wicked under punishment. And I believe that this twofold truth finds its complete fulfillment and unity in the cross of Jesus. Because in one single act, the Lord both condemned all wickedness but also saved all his people. In one beautiful moment, the wrath and the mercy of God find their marriage in the cross of Christ. And that is why we preach this. Because to us who are in the Lord, it is the message of hope. But to the world that is perishing, it is a message of hatefulness. So whatever trial you have, cling to your Savior, and you will be rescued. And whatever evil you see, that troubles your heart, cling to your God, he will repay, because God knows how to rescue the righteous and to keep the wicked under punishment. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may this truth ring well in our souls this week, that you know how to rescue the godly from trials and how to be perfectly just. You, 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 You tell your servant Moses that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay. And yet so often we do not believe that in our hearts. Teach us to lean upon Christ and the cross. And to trust in in the clothing of Christ's righteousness. Which wraps around us and makes us presentable in front of the Father. May that be our only plea in life and death. That you are our God who helps us. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.